This is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can't always give love the upper hand. All right, Brendan. So we're here January 31st, uh, last day of the first month of the new year. Um, been pretty exciting first month, a lot, a lot, uh, a lot going on. Um, uh, what are we talking about this week? It has been an exciting first month. It's certainly a busy first month for us as a, as a podcast and us as a country, uh, in terms of the country stuff, we've covered it ad nauseum, but I saw some like meme on the internet the other day and it was like four Wednesdays in January. And the first one was like the storming of the Capitol. The second one was the impeachment of the president. The third one was like the inauguration of Biden-Harris. And the fourth one was the GameStop controversy. And it was like, what a what a wild month that was. Uh, so we'll talk more about a couple of those things actually this episode. Um, but I do want to say now that we're into season two of our podcast, I uh, is that January was was a really good month and we appreciate everyone that has tuned in and listened and the people that continue to reach out and give us feedback. Uh, last week, we obviously had our first guest and while you and I have certainly talked a lot that we need to get a lot better as interviewers, it's been really nice when people have reached out and said, oh, that was great. I really enjoyed hearing another perspective and you guys should have more guests. And uh, that's something that we are going to continue to do on this second season. Uh, we think every couple of episodes, we're going to try to bring someone in that can bring a different perspective and might have more expertise on certain topics than, than you and I do. So we're excited for that. And we're excited to continue to get better um, as interviewers in that sense. But again, just want to take a minute and, and say thank you to everybody that continues to listen and, and spread the, spread the news, the, the good word, I'd say. I, we, we certainly appreciate it. Yeah, definitely. All right. So this episode is really just going to be two parts. Uh, the first part here is we're going to talk about everything that's happened in the Biden administration, not everything that's happened, but some of the things that have happened in the Biden administration over the first couple of weeks of his presidency and some issues that I have that I want to air out. Like this is fast. I got a lot of issues with you people. And I want to, I want to lay them all out there. We haven't talked too much about it um, just because other things have come up, but the, the largest segment for this week is going to be on that GameStop wall street controversy that has really taken over the internet and the news over the past week. And we're going to do a deep dive into what that means, not only in like financial sector, but also politically and as a society. So that'll be the the bulk of the episode. Yeah, I think I think those are two. You know, earlier on in the week, I almost called my first uh, emergency podcast session because I I got real deep into uh, a few Reddit rabbit holes on this on this Wall Street GameStop um, situation saga, if you will. Um, so I'm looking forward to getting into that. Well, I'm glad you showed restraint because I also wanted to record, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday that I was like, I, I have a lot of takes on this too. And I'm not, I wasn't nearly as deep in it as I know you were. So I'm excited to hear what we have to say, or what you have to say about that. Uh, but that'll be later on the episode. So what I want to talk about, and I hinted at this last week, and you and I have talked about this before, where we have this new administration and people are excited and hopeful. And those are all good things. And I don't want to be the guy now that's like raining on everybody's parade. But I also, I've been thinking a lot about what Ollie said last week in terms of holding electives accountable. That's 
something that's really kind of stuck in my mind over these past few days. And I feel like because everyone is so excited and everyone, you know, most people genuinely love, you know, Biden, who he is and really excited for Harris as his vice president and the, the, the diversity of his cabinet coming in. And chiefly, he's not Donald Trump. People have largely given him a pass over these past couple, the first couple of weeks. And, and that's really, I'm going to come back to this point over the course of this segment where I feel like the media is just, just not doing their jobs. And well, four years now, for four years now, I, people on the right have said like, this is the, the mainstream media, the liberal left-leaning media, that it's all biased, fake news. While a lot of that stuff was garbage and, and not true and just stuff that Trump was, for better word, like trumping up to kind of gain, get his, throw some red meat to his followers. Uh, looking at the media landscape and how reluctant everyone seems to be to criticize the Biden administration, it does scream to me of, of hypocrisy. And again, I get that people are excited that it's it's not Trump and things are going, going back to normal. But if things are going to go back to normal, the media needs to do their job and, and, and hold Biden accountable. Like the, the fawning over him from the inauguration through these first two weeks uh, has been somewhat nauseating, in my opinion. Yeah, that, uh, I, I, that's an interesting take. And I'm looking forward to hear sort of specifically what what you are taking the most issue with. I do. I mean, I think we we saw this in in many ways. And, and we've talked about this as a little bit of a benefit of the Trump administration is that people were paying more attention to basically everything that he did and trying to look at like, all right, what are the downstream impacts of of these, you know, random executive orders, or like these people that he's uh, posting to the cabinet positions. And I, and I would agree, like, you're not seeing um, that same sort of scrutiny, you know, partly because <laughs> a lot, I think of what he's doing is not it's not controversial in that, like, these are the types of people that you expect to get put in these positions, kind of career, either diplomats or, you know, people like Janet Yellen, someone who's been around at the Fed and now going to be the secretary treasury, like people with actual experience um, and, and track records that that make some of these things less controversial. But I, I definitely agree that there is a bit of a, a rose colored glasses, uh, you know, rose tinted um, glasses perspective here. And I <clears throat> certainly think from a media's perspective, having someone in the White House who isn't all that combative almost makes disarms in, in probably the wrong way. Right. And it's an effective tool that he's, but he just seems like such a doll. He just seems like such a good, and everyone in a good way is rooting for him. But it's different me rooting for him as just a citizen of the United States and the media whose job it is to hold these people accountable you know, rooting for him. I, I don't, that, that's bothered me. Uh, so let's start actually with a particular cabinet nominee that I want to get into. And that's uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin, who is now the Secretary of Defense. And he got confirmed last week by a vote of 93 to two. Overwhelming uh, majority. He is the first Black Secretary of Defense in our country's history, which is really exciting, not only to break that glass ceiling, but the military, like all parts of American society, is rife with you know, racial issues. Uh, certainly, I think more are coming to light given some of the recent events that have happened in our country. And having a black man in charge of that department is exciting and, and necessary in a lot of ways. And so I'm excited for that. And he was 
to give a little bit of background, he was the, the leader of our forces in Iraq and Afghanistan, in the Middle East for several years, very highly thought of by people well, across the spectrum in terms of his military credentials. It couldn't seem like a very intelligent guy. My criticism of his appointment to this post has nothing to do with his credentials. I think he is absolutely well credentialed to be in the spot that he is in. But and you're probably aware of this. He retired from active duty in 2016. So just four or five years ago now. There is a law in the books that says that military generals that have to be retired for at least seven years in order to be appointed to the head of the Secretary of Defense, to be appointed as a Secretary of Defense. And the rationale for that when that rule was put in place is that the framers of our constitution of our country wanted to keep civilian control of the military. They were very frightened of a possibility of generals leading the, the Department of Defense. And I think they were rightly skeptical of that. And so there have been three waivers granted, including this, including the one for Austin, granted to allow generals who have been out of service for less than seven years to be appointed to the military. The first was in the 1950s, uh, George Marshall was appointed the Secretary of Defense. We know Marshall from the Marshall Plan, which he put in place, but he did that as the Secretary of Defense, uh, this, um, the Secretary of State, and which seems to be a role in which he thrived. Um, not necessarily given the involvement in the Korean conflict, wasn't necessarily great for as, as a Secretary of Defense, but we don't need to go to dive too deeply into it. But then there wasn't a waiver granted until Secretary Mattis in 2016. So Jim Mattis, um, Trump appointed him and the rationale on the right to appoint him was like, hey, Trump is a wild card. He has zero experience with the military or anything. We need a general to kind of bring order. And he seems to fit the right, the bill for the moment. Fine. But I want to go back because in 2016, Senate Democrats up in arms about giving this waiver to, to General Mattis. Uh, and so Kirsten Gillibrand, Democrat from Democratic Senator from New York, quote, Civilian control of our military is a fundamental principle of American democracy, and I will not vote for an exception to this rule. All right, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts. Americans have always been skeptical of concentrated government power and concentrated military power is at the top of that list. There were lots of highly impressive qualified World War II veterans in 1947 who were barred from serving as Secretary of Defense. We established this rule because the principle of civilian control protects our democracy and our democracy is more important than any one individual. Senator Jack Reed, Democrat from Rhode Island. Waiving the law should happen no more than once in a generation. Therefore, I will not support a waiver for future nominees, nor will I support any effort to water down or repeal the statute in the future. So senators voting no, Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, Pat Leahy, Tammy Duckworth, Dick Durbin, Chris Murphy, Dick Blumenthal, John Tester, Chris Van Hollen, Patty Murray, Tammy Baldwin, Jeff Merkley, Ron Wyden. Democratic platform written just this past summer at the party's national convention. Quote, Democrats believe that healthy civil military relations are essential to our democracy and to the strength and effectiveness of our military. We will end the Trump administration's politicization of the armed forces and distortion of civilian and military roles in decision-making. We will reinstate national security policy-making processes that advance competent civilian control. So this is just a long way of saying that <laughs> the the hypocrisy is unbelievable. And we have rightly spent time calling out hypocrisy on the right 
for certain issues over the past few months. And that hypocrisy should be called out, but it needs to be called out in both ways. And it's not been called out in the media, really anywhere that I can see over this past week. Austin was passed with a vote of 93 to two in the Senate. And so all of these, these 16 Democrats who are up in arms, all those quotes saying, we can't, the, the rule of law, our, our civilian control is far more important than any one individual. Well, now when it's, it's Biden and it's their guy getting the chance to nominate, well, we're just gonna pass him through. That, that kind of stuff really infuriates me, that sort of hypocrisy. And it has, you have to hold these people to account. Like, as you have said previously, when we were talking about like Lindsey Graham, words matter. And you can't just say one thing and then do the exact opposite and still claim this moral high ground. I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, I, I've frequently find that not having principled individuals um, lead our government is is just troubling, and and sometimes you should have to vote against your own party um, in order to to uphold principles if you truly believe them. Um, I'm curious if you know what was what was Mattis's confirmation vote was 81, it 81 to 17. So I mean, at the end of the day, um, although no you, one cares, no one cares about all these things that they say they care about. Right, right. Well, what I'm saying is though, like I I totally. Uh, agree and you're it, it is absolutely right to point that out but probably on both sides relatively uncontroversial confirmations um with mattis or um with with lloyd austin yeah it's it's just one of those things where i think there were, there's been a lot of push of biden needs to return our democracy our government to quote unquote normal and, and reestablish certain norms of democracy which i agree but when those norms only suit your purposes and then when they don't suit your purposes, you're just going to kind of skirt the norms and go with what works for you. Then it's, it, it, again, it's just rife with hypocrisy and it's, it sets a bad example. I think one of the troubling things is when Trump is expanding executive power and I'm going to get into this in a minute and everyone's right, rightfully calling him out for doing so and saying how dangerous it is to continue to accumulate power in fewer and fewer hands great, let's call him out. But then when your guy gets into power, you're going to use those same levers to govern now. It That's the erosion of democratic norms because once things are gone, the other party is just going to use it to their advantage. It's the same thing when, when the Democrats eliminated the, the filib judicial filibuster back in you know 2012 and then re Republicans ripped them for it and then went around, went four years later when they were in the majority, just did the same thing for Supreme Court nominees, right? And it's a, when you start eroding these powers, We've said it many times, but like at some point, someone actually has to take like principled and moral stands, and you have no one wants to be the you know the bigger person because it's this weakness, right? And the the rallying cry in the left is like, well, Republicans never would do this if they were in power, so we're not going to give up any power on our side. And it's like okay, fine, but that doesn't that doesn't advance us as a country. That doesn't safeguard these norms that theoretically you everyone should be for. Yeah. And but unfortunately, maybe it's it's a broader indictment of a shortcoming of democracy. Right. Because in doing so and potentially like limiting the power of your own party, you are essentially ensuring that you lose the next primary challenge. Right. Because they basically come and say you are in power to advance our objectives. And instead of doing everything in your power to do that, which, of course, you know, may or may not be in the best interest of the country but potentially in the best interest of the party, like you're just going to, you're going to do that. And, and unfortunately 
I think we see when incentives are misaligned and we're going to talk probably at length about that in the, in the wall street situation um, that, that people tend to do the thing that doesn't work out best for everybody in the end. I mean, I think you're at, you're, you're absolutely right um, to, to point that out and it, and it's, it should be troubling, but I don't know who is the person to come in and like, you know, Hey, we, we wrote these rules at the beginning for a reason. They were to prevent situations like this. Um, and, and for everyone to recognize that all of these moves are short-term gains. Um, exactly. Yeah. They are, they were written for a reason. And it's was it's not like there weren't as qualified as secretary Austin is there were other qualified candidates, right? Like um, Jay Johnson, who was, who served as the Homeland, the Secretary of Homeland Security in the Obama administration? He also a black man. Like we, we could have achieved that same glass ceiling, but done it in in a way that aligned with the rules. And even like Michelle Flournoy, uh, could have been the first female Secretary of Defense. That would have been you know glass shattering in its in its own way. Um, another civilian. So it's like it's 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 frustrating because it's not like this guy was uniquely qualified. It's. Mm -hmm. Again, I, I will certainly root for him to do well and, and keep us safe and, and make the correct decisions for the country. But it's troubling, and you put it well, where it's become so much party over country. Like it's who are the leaders that are going to put the country first, right? The, the oaths that they all take to swear to protect and defend the Constitution, not the Republican or Democratic parties. Yeah, which all, all, also kind of makes you think that potentially we needed a new party you know, in, in, in several other countries, obviously we have the sort of that centrist moderate party that's more about the rules and the processes than they are about the parties themselves. Yeah, I will, we'll, we'll beat that drum every couple episodes for however long this podcast goes on. All right. And so another thing that I want to take issue with uh, is, so Biden's been president now for you know about two weeks. And he's issued as many executive actions as Trump and Obama did in that same period combined. So 25 executive orders, 10 presidential memos, four proclamations within his first 12 days of office. We did 17, right, in the first day or something? Yes. yes. So there's almost any way you slice it, his, his executive actions over these past two weeks is like wildly out of proportion with all of his predecessors. So um, his proclamations are twice as many as Trump and Clinton issued, three more than Obama and Bush. A number of executive orders, you know, he's got 25, I said. Obama was second with nine. It, it's, it's, it, this is, again, where I'm, I'm frustrated. And I want to say this as well, is that a number of his executive orders, I'm in favor of the policies that he's putting in place. So some of the things that he's done, and I'm sure people are already paying attention to this, but advancing racial equity and support for the underserved communities through the federal government. Uh, he's, there's some, there's some COVID things. He's repealed the transgender uh, ban on transgender people in the military. He repealed the, the Muslim ban, like all of these things, I, like I'm in favor of doing. And honestly, Trump enacted a lot of them through executive orders, but this is just, this is not how you govern. And if theoretically, if anyone would get that would be a guy that spent like 50 years in the Senate actually governing, I would think, right? This is where I was, I was hopeful. <laughs> this is, this is like a running theme when I, a couple episodes where I was like, I was hopeful about President Trump. I was hopeful about President Biden. He's not off to a good start in my book. Uh, but so this is, this is a really specific thing. There's in, this got a little bit of coverage, certainly on the right, where there's this like Mexico city policy where um, this 
Reagan implemented it, it bans US funding for global organizations that provide abortion services. It's, I don't, I don't wanna discuss the policy, but so Reagan puts it in with the executive order. Clinton repeals it with executive order. Bush reinstates it with executive order. Obama repeals it with executive order. Trump reinstates it with executive order. Biden repeals it with executive order. Like, this is not how you govern. Like, this is, this should be ridiculous to everyone involved that, like, that we're just going to, every four or eight years, we're just going to completely, totally change our policy on, on certain things through executive order and not legislating at all. It's, I, I, hopefully this won't continue. I get that he ha- made a lot of promises in his campaign to do X number of things on day one, X number of things in the first hundred days. And Again, some of his policies, many of the policies I'm in favor of, but I hate the method that he's using to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I can't, um, I, I too have issues with executive orders. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that, that he's without blame here. I guess what I will say is a good chunk of those executive orders, especially the ones that, that were on day one, were specifically to undo Trump's executive orders, which many of which had been thrown out in courts and things like that along the way. And so I don't, I don't necessarily know that I have as much of a problem with, with that specific action. But I think, I think your point definitely stands that executive order is not a way to govern, especially I would say in a period of such polarization, because you really do need Republicans to champion the same things that you are putting forward. And that's only going to come when they sign off on it through legislation in the house and in the Senate. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful for things like, you know, expansion of maybe the affordable, affordable care act, things like that to come through um, on the, you know, through legislation rather than executive order, which of course, you know, for any systemic change is not going to, it's not lasting because the guy that comes in is going to flip it off. Exactly. Which is, that's so, again, you mentioned this earlier, but it's just so short term and thinking like these short term victories. So everyone can pat Biden or they can all pat themselves on the back. Well, if you lose your election in in four years, some of this stuff is immediately going to be overturned, which is not, again, it doesn't work. That's not how laws work because you have to pass things legislatively and repeal things they're much more lasting and impactful. Um, but to your point, uh, one of the things that's been one of the main policy issues or measures that Biden's been trying to get through is that $1.9 trillion COVID economic relief bill. Uh, the big holdup in it is actually Joe Manchin, the Democratic Center from West Virginia, who we, we've mentioned a couple of times, who's been against this for a number of reasons. Uh, mainly, he, he feels like Given that Congress already spent $4 trillion in the last year, he feels like the price tag's too high. There are certain checks that have been sent out to people making over $300,000. You know, but, uh, you're making hundreds of thousands of dollars and they're getting stimulus checks and they're basically just putting it in the bank and, and not helping anybody. Uh, and so he's, these are, in my opinion, like really legitimate concerns. So what does the administration do? I don't know if you saw this, but Harris goes, gives an interview in West Virginia and basically rips Manchin. And I get the purpose is to like put pressure on him, but it, in what world do you think people in West Virginia are going to like be in favor of certain things like this and that they're going to listen to Harris? Harris can't be wildly popular in West Virginia. Like Manchin going against the Democratic Party probably gets him more votes than going forward with a $1.9 trillion thing. But this is like exactly the opposite of what should be happening. Like Manchin is like pleading with the Biden administration to reach out to Republicans. Just today I saw that. Uh, a group of 10 Republican senators led by Susan Collins from Maine 
reached out to Biden with a $600 billion plan. Again, we can debate back and forth whether or not that's enough, but Biden pledged to work with Republicans and they're essentially calling his bluff. They're going to him and saying, well, we, you have a plan, we have a plan, let's try to get something done. And then the progressive wing of the party seems to be like, let's just move forward without them. I think that would be an incredibly dangerous way to start this administration where the main thing that you're going to try to get through, which is an urgent need, for many reasons, for money for the vaccine rollout, and certainly for people struggling with rent or food insecurity. Uh, but to try to push this through without any bipartisan support, I think even senators, Republican senators that are willing to work with Biden on certain things, if this is how you start your tenure by like ramming this down our throats, there's not going to, things will be held up. It will turn into the exact partisan mess that it was four, uh, four years ago, eight years ago. Yeah, I I think I think a couple of things just about this particular situation strike me as as interesting. Um, yeah, and 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 I and I you know I want to touch on a few few things that you said there. So obviously, like the exact amount of money, it is very hard to tell. You know what what is the right amount of money? While you can argue that at at having spent four trillion already, adding one point nine trillion is got to be too much. It's like, well, four, I mean, four trillion, like what, you know, at this point, like what is money even? Um, And, and of course, you know, as you mentioned, there are people who, who do need money, but, but also, you know, the way that we've operated to disperse money. I mean, it's based on like 2019 taxes, potentially based on 2018 taxes. You didn't file in 2019. So not necessarily reflective of people's current economic situations. Um, that that right there there are some issues in administration we don't really need we don't really want to be given how far in the hole we are we don't necessarily want to be handing out money for as you said for people to just take it out of the economy and stick it in the bank um the i think the thing about joe manchin is an interesting one because i feel like he is now like the susan collins mitt romney of of the new administration which is like republicans are like hoping like all right, this is a guy that we can count on to, to, to kind of do right by us. And I mean, you know, I, I would I would say from the other side of it, I think I'm not sure necessarily they have a right to expect him not to fall in line eventually as as Collins and Romney did, you know, on on many occasions for issues that that Democrats would have hoped that they would have kind of come through in the slightly more moderate conservative side. Um, but I, I think the I think the point is right. It, it, it it's almost like we came out with this 1.9 trillion 1.9 trillion dollar figure and anything short of that is going to be a loss for us. And so there is no negotiation like we just won't negotiate. Um which is as you as you said it, it is it's it's terrible if for the only reason that now for the next four years, all you're going to hear about is Republicans talking about how irresponsible the government has been under Democrat control. And when when they all object to, to something like you just you just need that buy in um, at a time like this more more than ever. And so it really feels like we should, as as a Democratic Party, look for avenues to, to throw a bone. Right. It's not that they're saying nothing. Like if we can come down to 1.2 or something and figure out some other concession to make, we should we should be doing that um, at every 
at every turn. And it, but the problem is though, we're in this era where compromise is weakness and all you're worried about primarily is, is the, your next primary challenge. Right. And you know, what's crazy is when you reflect on it, Manchin is probably the most powerful Senator in the country right now. Yeah, and yeah. for I mean, several years, Kennedy was on the court, right? Like that middle person, that's the swing vote. Exactly. And for several years, Collins was Murkowski, maybe Romney. Like we'll talk about like John Tester in Montana, like there are other. And so when you think of it from like a bird's eye view, if you are someone in a, in a state, you want your Senator to be as powerful as possible, right? Not just one of a hundred, but one of the top few of a hundred, because when you are the most powerful, other people have to come to you. And so you can gain more things for West Virginia or Maine, certainly states with communities that need some extra support and might not necessarily get that support if you didn't have senators that were really powerful. And it's funny that we continue, and we've talked about this you know, more than enough, but our primary system, how it's set up to continue to elect more and more radical people on the right and left who actually are not powerful at all because people just count on their votes on both sides. Like no one's talking to the, the radical right or the radical left. Everyone's just coming down to these, you know, five to 15 senators that actually are moderate and could potentially swing one way or the other. So it, it gets back to a point that we've made repeatedly, but I agree. I think this is a great opportunity to throw Republicans a bone and uh, to set a good precedent for, for the next four years. If you can get this done, like you said, for 1.2 trillion with 10 Republicans signed on, that is a big deal and something that Biden can go out and say, look, I'm actually doing what I said. I was going to work in a bipartisan fashion and I'm doing that. Like that's a promise made, promise kept. And to get Republicans support on it, now we can work, we can go forward and try to do some other things. Let's do infrastructure next. We can also get bipartisan support on that. There are fights that are going to be bitter that are coming. Let's not start that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that's, that's totally fair. Um, and it's, and it's so tough because now with social media and stuff beyond C-SPAN, like, and I mean, I guess this isn't quite a new phenomenon, but to some degree elected officials are on the news and giving press briefings and doing these kinds of things like far more often than ever before. So that like, you know, we can have personal conversations and, you know, do some horse trading that, it feels like used to happen again. Like I may be having nostalgia for a bygone era that never was, but there, there at least was this kind of like uh, feeling that, that, that kind of um, bipartisanship actually happened. Um, But now it's like, if you, you come out of one of those things and if you're not hurling insults about how the other side is like, you know, whatever heartless or, um, you know, whatever, that's probably the nicest thing that, that they say these days. Um, if you're not doing that, then, then all of a sudden you're like, you're playing for the wrong team somehow. And it's, it feels, I don't know. <laughs> it's another area that, that just, it feels intractable because of this, the, the incentives that we have in the system just don't really benefit folks who are like, I want to, I want, I want to move forward and I want you to come with me and I want you to, 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 you know, to feel like, um, that we're doing this together. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And so speaking of bipartisanship, when we come back, we'll get into the, the GameStop and Wall Street controversy and maybe potentially another area for bipartisanship cooperation, but to be determined on that. Well, I 
just sat there and wondered why I was gonna buy low and sell it high But things sure didn't work out that way I don't know what I'm gonna do And to tell y'all the truth I think I've lost my assets today So you texted me Wednesday night, or maybe we're FaceTiming or something, and you said, have you been following what's going on with this GameStop stuff? And I was like, ah, kind of. Like, I've, I've heard about it. I know what's kind of floating out there, but I don't know too much about it. And you're like, all right, well, this is what I want to talk about for the next episode. And I was like, all right, well, it sounds good. Uh, and then Thursday, Thursday's when it really all popped off. And I know you're going to get into the timeline of it, but I got down my own rabbit hole like Thursday afternoon. And I texted you and I was like, Credit to you because you turned me on to this, but this stuff is wild. And so then I was, I just like couldn't get enough of it. It, it just seemed to be everywhere on Thursday afternoon. I was trying to consume as much of it as possible. Uh, but that, that's what we're going to talk about here in, in this segment. So I'll, I'll kick it to you because you were the one that were that was onto this really from the start, I guess. So can you take it away? All right. So I, I kind of want to do this segment a little bit differently because I think um, – Part of what I was thinking about is that I feel like everyone's ingesting what's happening right now, just sort of the the news of it, but kind of creating their own sort of narrative. So my first question, and I'm curious on your end, like who are kind of the heroes and the villains of this story? All right. Well, I'll, I'll go to the second part of that first, because I think the villains seem to be the hedge funds, but not only the hedge funds, it's kind of like the bigger, the managers of the hedge funds. So I don't know a ton of their names, like the, like, like, like Melvin Capital, um, D1, like some of these things that I'm like aware of. Steve Cohen, who's the new owner of the Mets, I think I've been, I've heard more about him just because he's in like in the sports world too. Uh, so Cintron, is that one? Yes, yeah, Citron. Citron. Oh, I'm sorry for the pronunciation. So those would those would be the villains, and and certainly the biggest villain, in my opinion, is the Vlad, the guy, the the Robin Hood app guy, who stopped all of the trading on Thursday afternoon and refused to let people that were invested in GameStop and AMC and these other couldn't they you couldn't buy anymore. He refused, refused to let them trade. So those would be my main villains, heroes. I don't necessarily know that they're really in heroes. Uh, I guess, I mean, my rooting interest is for the quote unquote little guy. We can talk whether or not that's actually, you know, who those people are, but the the retail investor, day trader people, those are certainly the people that I would be rooting for. I am rooting for in this saga. Okay. All right. Well, maybe we should, we should, I should ask this question again um, because I, I similarly had the, like when I first opened up the story, that was, that was the take I it felt like the media was sort of pushing. Here's a bunch of little guys. They're taking down the big hedge funds. Um, and now all of a sudden, you know, the, the app that they trade on Robinhood is, is because of some kind of covert collusion with these big hedge funds is now, um, is now harming the little guy. And, and it goes to show that the story is rigged. The I think you're, you're setting me up here. <laughs> No, all right, because I mean, I think, I think, I think it's actually possible that that is the real story. But after going down my Reddit rabbit holes and trying to find um, news sources, and like I listened to interviews with 
uh, Vlad, I'm going to screw up his last name, Tenev, I think it is, who is the CEO of Robinhood, one of the founders of Robinhood, um, the guy who uh, is the owner founder of Webull, which is a similar um, stock trading site that, that, you know, sort of came um, into its own in the past couple of years. Um, but I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. So I did, I do want to level set um, on a few bits of terminology that we're going to use here, because I think people use them very casually and often they do define them. But if you're not very financially literate, which I'm, I'm not going to claim to be um, sort of an expert here. And anybody who's listening, if I say something that's factually incorrect, please send in a fact check. I would be happy to correct myself here. Um, but, you know, we use these terms a lot. And I think sometimes it's difficult to like actually know, like, what does that mean, really? Um, <clears throat> so I guess I want to start there um, and then get into like, yeah, the different aspects of the story that I, that I think at the end of the day, make what happened a lot more uh, murky and a lot less clear as to, to who are the winners and losers here um, and who are the heroes and villains. So first thing I wanted to ask is, if you were to define what a stock is, what would what would you say? <laughs> I know this is like an unfair quiz, and if you feel like deferring on, I can. I'm I'm happy to jump in, but just like this feels it, like another one of those things that you were like, uh, he he doesn't need to. He's on a need to know basis. He doesn't need to know. I'm gonna be interviewing him in this segment. All right, I would say a stock is an investment that someone has in a company. Okay. Um, and how would you say uh, a stock is valued? Well, uh, I think it's supposed to be valued on kind of like the the bottom lines of the country of the company, right? How like how successful the company is, whether it's you know moving retail or whatever business that that they're in. And so there's there's a term that I'm, I'm blanking on, uh, but. The, that like there are certain like bottom line indicators yeah metrics fu profitability fundamentals the fundamentals of the ah, okay. yeah like that that term i've heard right like what are the fundamentals of this company and so like for example like a company like apple right you, you kind of look at are they coming out with new products are they moving into new markets or is a particular iphone selling really well like those are the things where it's like all right if those things are happening i want to be invested in that because i think the company will be valued more and the stock will go up and i'll make money off that yeah yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a, a very sound explanation. Um, one more question, and then I'll and then I'll hop into this. How do you value a house? Like, what is a house worth? Well, there's several ways I think to value a house. There's the market rate where it's worth X number of dollars, and you know that varies depending on the neighborhood and you know traditional buyer seller economics and what you do to make the house nice and work you put into it. And then there's also kind of the emotional aspect of, of a house, a home that, that you own and it's, it's your, it's, you know, it's your own and you get to decorate it and live there and do, do the things that you want to do with it. And so that's, uh, I think there are kind of several different ways to measure the value of a house. Okay. So I would say that that definition is true. I think a lot of those things contribute into it. But at a very basic level, a house is worth whatever someone is willing to pay for it, right? So that's that tends to be how we say, you know, it's a million dollar home because somebody at some point paid a million dollars for it, right? So I would say similarly, a stock is really what somebody is willing to pay for it. And, I, and I'm 
And I'm hopeful that my train of thought lasts through this thing. So I can kind of tie this back up at the end. But um, when you're buying a stock, what you're buying is an ownership share of the company, right? Stocks are um, pieces, a percentage of um, a company. And the reason sort of traditionally, the reason that you would buy a stock is because, as you were saying, you sort of believe in its forward um, in its projections, its outlooks, you believe in its profitability in the future. Um, sort of the classic way of valuating a stock is has to do with its dividends. So dividends are going to be a piece of those profits in the future that they would pay to stock owners. And the idea is, you know, how we think about those dividends over time is how we would evaluate this stock. And as the profitability changes, those dividends may change over time and that stock may become more or less valuable. Um, but the idea is <clears throat> I own this stock, I own this share. It's not really a tangible thing, right? As long as the business runs, I own a, a share of the business. If the business uh, you know, goes bankrupt or closes or whatever, all of a sudden my shares were zero. But until then, the only thing that I can do with that share besides hold on to it is go to the market and try and sell it. And I would sell it at whatever price somebody's willing to buy it from me. Um, so I wanted to start there because I think a lot of people sort of miss or, or uh, don't always put together the piece that when somebody is buying a share of a stock, somebody is selling it to them, right? There's a fixed number of shares. So you don't, you're not going to a vending machine and buying a stock out of there or a store. It, it is a transaction between two different parties, not necessarily people, um, but, but that's kind of one thing. And then of course, sort of the main focus of this, uh, of, I guess, of, yeah, of, of what happened over the past week is a short. Um, so what, what is a short? Have, yeah, I mean, well, let's, let's, yeah, I'm gonna do one more bonus question. What is a short? I'm kind of getting used to this now. I'm just sitting here waiting for you to ask me questions. Uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, a short is when people or companies are taking or bet, essentially betting against a, comp, uh, uh, a company. And you are saying that you see their stock price and for whatever reason, maybe the fundamentals aren't great, that you think it's overvalued. And so you are betting that that stock price is going to go down. And if it goes down, you can make a lot of money off of it. Yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly right. Um, but I think, I think it's important. I one. Yeah. yeah. A little bit to <laughs> talk about um, the mechanism. So what you're doing when you, when you short a stock is you are actually, you're borrowing the stock at today's price. You're going to turn around and sell it. So say the stock is worth, trading at the market at $20 today, you know, and I'm going to simplify a lot. So I'm taking out a lot of transaction fees and, you know, there's some margins here um, that I'm not going to account for, but, but very simplistically stock is trading at $20 today in order to short it. I'm going to borrow the stock from somebody. It doesn't, does, doesn't just happen in thin, in, in, out of thin air, um, borrow the stock, sell it today at that $20 when the price goes down, I will buy it back at whatever the price is. And that difference, say the price dropped to $10, I bought the stock back at $10, I give you back your stock, I keep the $10 for myself. That is in effect how somebody who's shorting a stock is going to make money on that transaction, right? Um, <clears throat> who essentially is giving up that money? So the money is being lost by the person who lent out the stock. 
essentially, right? So that it is, I, I feel like it is kind of important to understand that when somebody is making money in this fashion, somebody is also losing value. The, the, there's no creation of additional dollars. When somebody says, I made all this money in the market, really what happens is the valuation of one person's portfolio went up and somebody else's went down and it's kind of a bouncing ledger. It's like so a zero sum game. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, that, that's something that often gets lost, um, especially when we're talking about the stock market is that, yeah, because we're not like buying and selling goods, physical goods, it is really, we're buying and selling a valuation of something. Um, <clears throat> so try and backtrack into, into a very brief overview as to what happened here. We had a few companies, um, uh, you were mentioning Melvin Capital, and there was a, a handful of others that are essentially looking at a company like GameStop. Um, you know, it's like a mall-based real retailer of video games. Um, I don't know if you used to frequent it. I would go a lot where you, you can essentially yeah. like bring back your old video games, sell them usually for like two, three dollars a game, um, and then buy, buy a new game, potentially buy a system. Um, something that is very irrelevant in today's world where almost all the games that you buy, you just download direct to your Xbox. Yeah, this, is a, this is a tangent or just a side comment, but I yeah, was yeah. over, my mom's like cleaning out my room at their house. And so I have like all this stuff that's just dumped out that I have to go through. And I found an old Game Boy uh, the other day and I brought it home I was, or brought it to my house. And I have all these like little stock games that you slide in the back. And I was like, I am probably not going to actually sit down and play those games, but I also didn't want to throw them out. So this is, this is my GameStop tangent. I was like, oh, what the memories of like sitting in the backseat on like a road trip, going to like a family vacation or something and playing on my Game Boy. It's like, oh man. And that's where I feel like GameStop was at its, at its height when, uh, when that trip to the video game store was like, I mean, you must have been a really good boy to get to get to to go in there and pick out something that you wanted. But anyways, fast forward, it's 2020. Um, it's a mall based retailer. Malls are getting crushed pre pandemic. And then on top of it, the goods that they sell, aside from maybe the physical consoles, um, are largely downloadable. Uh, so you have these hedge funds, I think rightly so looking at looking at how this company is going to survive into the future. It doesn't have a huge e-commerce presence. Even if it did, again, you're buying the games directly from Xbox, from Microsoft, from whatever, Sony, PlayStation, um, directly onto your console. So you're not likely to go to a GameStop's website or something like that. Anyways, I'm going to digress on whether or not GameStop is actually fundamentally a good or a bad company. Um, let's just say all... The hedge funds that were sort of reading the tea leaves on this one all came to the same conclusion that this guy's going under at some point in like the next, you know, at some point in the near future, we are going to short the stock a ton. Um, what started happening over the past summer uh, is you you did have guys in social media sort of talking to each other. I think the amount of people that were, they're called sort of like retail traders, um, grew exponentially over the course of the pandemic. I think people kind of working from home don't always have to be looking like you're, you got your real spreadsheets on. You can kind of, uh, you know, open up the Robinhood app or whatever and, and do some day trading. And um, 
Yeah. yeah, like there was a period where sports weren't happening and it's like you can go to casinos or for many places. So it was kind of like, all right, where, where do I get my fix, my gambling fix? It's all right, I'm going to get into trading. Yeah, and uh, what's his name? Dave Portnoy on Barstool Sports has his own like where he's live streaming his his trades and that really became kind of a, a mini phenomenon where people are just texting each other like, oh, I just put down, you know, 500 bucks or 500, 5,000, 50,000, whatever it was on like Bitcoin or whatever, whatever people were sort of doing, it became a, a bit of a, a sport over the past year. So this, you know, I, I think it's important to keep that in mind when we talk about who is on sort of the Wall Street bet side of the things, um, kind of the the little man in, in this equation, I'm saying that with huge air quotes, um, is probably not not so little and, and maybe not as sympathetic of a figure as, uh, as, as you might initially think, um, upon one, upon following some of the news coverage of this story and just like, Oh, it's, you know, the little guys are fighting the big, bad hedge funds. Um, I think, I think that was, you know, sort of important here, uh, for me to try and conceptualize anyways. So there, uh, They're on this Reddit channel called Wall Street Bets. Um, you know, they various figures on that channel also have their YouTube channels. It, it's just sort of like the the social media world that we live in today. But just you know, you you're laughing a little bit. It's also hard for me to understand. Obviously, we're we're both young guys, but in many ways, this is like passed us up a little bit. Like I don't, I don't know. I don't. I really know very little about Reddit. Um, or, or kind of the, the world of like live streaming on, on YouTube, but here we are making a podcast. So, um, anyways, uh, I digress as, as I, as I am want to do, um, they essentially, I mean, there are kind of a number of different things going on here. They get a few guys that are saying, you know what? No, we actually think there's some, some fundamental, uh, reasons to be optimistic in, in GameStop, GameStop got a new board member, like an ex guy from, uh, from the dog subscription company, Chewy, that was, uh, that got bought by Amazon. So, you know, potentially some reasons to be optimistic, but maybe not a ton. Um, and then all of a sudden over the past week, this stock just explodes and there are kind of a number of different reasons. Um, some people just kind of hopping on the hype train and seeing how far you can ride it. Um, some people with the expressed expressed interest in sort of taking down a Wall Street hedge fund. So there's this idea that, um, you know, we know that these hedge funds pay, place these bets uh, to short this company. If the stock goes up, um, what happens is uh, it's this essentially a thing called a short squeeze, where if the stock goes up, you know, you were intending to buy back a stock at a lower price. Now that the stock is higher, you have to buy it back at the market price. And so eventually the stock goes so high that you can't really wait to, you know, you can't wait for it to drop back down. You have to buy it. So a short squeeze is essentially those groups that shorted the stock and the stock was shorted 114% of its value. So it was shorted more than than sort of the shares outstanding. I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly how that works. potentially a conversation for another day, but they have to buy back in. And so you got the Wall Street bets guys buying the stock. You have the owners of the shorts also buying the stock. Um, this confluence sends a stock from, it was $4 in April of 2020, was 
trading around $18, uh, $19 in the early week last week. Um, by midweek, it had gone up to $350 a share. So for those keeping score at home, somebody uh, had placed a the the sort of the the lead of, of the Wall Street bets pact here, a guy who goes by the name of Roaring Kitty um, <laughs> on YouTube had put a fifty thousand dollar bet down, and or I say a bet because that's largely what it what it was in this context in investment in GameStop, um, which had reached a valuation of over fifty million dollars um, by the middle of the week, um, and then. And I know I've gone on way too long here. So where does this story kind of get into like the conspiracy sort of the nefarious part of it right now? At at this point, everything is kind of in the realm of like, this is how the market can function. It can be volatile. Um, You know, hedge funds can short. They've been doing that for a long time. Uh, And individual traders like there have been instances in the past where people get really bullish on certain stocks for whatever reason, fundamentals or otherwise, um, and drive up that stock price, right? So all of these things are, are sort of normal, um, but what happens? So the day traders all trade on platforms like Robinhood, and sometime Wednesday, Thursday, Robinhood basically says, we're no longer allowing you to buy um, shares of these stocks Um you can only sell. So of course, what happens? Some people panic, they sell their stock, stock price drops 40% day over day, Wednesday to Thursday. Um, I might have that timeline wrong, could be Thursday to Friday. Anyways, it it drops precipitously because if everyone in the market is a seller, um, of course, the price is going to fall, right? Similarly, if everyone's a buyer, the price is going to go up. Um, same, same sort of concept with with home prices, um, and and everyone sort of looking at Robinhood and saying, "Why would you ever do this? Why would you stop allowing people to trade? This is like un-American. There's some amendment rights, you know, necessarily being violated here, um, and clearly you're evil, evil, and you have some conflicts of interest." So I did do some digging on Robinhood, and I know that I've like droned on. For far too long here, but I'm 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 gonna keep going. So, <clears throat> what did you know? Robinhood is is I think you know they got like over ten thousand or fifteen thousand negative one star reviews on the App Store within a day, right? Everyone's like, you're clearly evil, and and they're trying to kind of connect the dots, like you know, conspiracy board. Here's the lines that I'm drawing. So, <clears throat> um why would Robinhood do this? So, I, I mean, I think, you know, there's certainly a communication problem here. They had a lot of, uh, I don't think they articulated very well what happened. And I'm not actually necessarily saying that they didn't do anything wrong. Um, but effectively, what they were saying is that uh, we could no longer um, cover the credit required to allow people to make these trades. Now, going all the way back to the beginning, I was saying, you know, what happens when somebody is trying to buy a stock, right? There's always a buyer and a seller and Robinhood is a broker. So Robinhood essentially is is making those connections. Obviously they're making it through a computerized platform, but you do need to essentially be able to 
do that, right? There's only a fixed number of shares in the market. You can't just like, you're not going to a grocery store and taking the stock off the shelf and it is whatever the price is, right? We have intraday price movements of, you know, 25 to $50 um, every hour, every five minutes, this price is, is flying all over the place. And what that means for Robinhood is if they get an order to buy a bunch of shares, they turn around and say, all right, we need a seller for these shares at this price. The seller's gonna say, okay, I'll give you these shares, but I need that money like now. And so what that creates is essentially a credit crunch. So Robinhood, if they're trying to buy like a million dollars worth of shares, they need to have that million dollars to be able to initiate that transaction before they turn around and take the million dollars from the customer who wanted to buy the shares um, and, and give them the shares in return. Uh, so there is, there is actually just a, a mechanical reason for why they were like, you know, the volatility on this stock is massive. Our, we're not able to maintain the credit requirements to make sure that we're able to buy and sell these shares the way that you want. So that was sort of one thing. Now, of course, why would they allow the shares to continue to be sold and not bought? I think it does have to do with this credit thing, but of course the end result is now you have people who are only selling shares tanking the price, right? So it, it shouldn't be lost on people that it did have an, an effect on the market and it did have the effect that, you know, the Wall Street bets guys were getting hammered um, at the same time that potentially hedge funds who hadn't closed out their short position were finally making money. These two things are not, it, yeah, it, I mean- that hedge funds had reloaded, and this is a rumor going around that is unsubstantiated, which I do think needs to be investigated, had reloaded that short position. So another company that I had failed to mention earlier was Citadel uh, with Ken Griffin, I think his name is. Uh, and so once you know GameStop was trading up, like you say, 350, 400 a share, if some of these big positions come in, these big hedge funds and, and reload on these shorts being like, I know that it's going to go down. I mean, it, this is just ridiculous. It cannot keep rising like this. It makes zero sense. You reload your shorts, then Robinhood freezes it on Thursday. You have this massive sell-off that you just referenced. It's now trading, you know, under 200. It's, it's been cut in half in, in this day. All the hedge funds make back a huge amount that they lost on the previous day. So again, whether or not that was Robinhood's intention, that seems to have been the effect. Yeah, and certainly. And then, of course, it is important to know that Robinhood, so Robinhood offers free trades. How does it do that, though, right? I, I don't think people really like to examine how their free services are free. Um, so, of course, you know, you know, with a Facebook or Instagram or a Google, your free services are, are free because you're freely giving these companies all of your data, which they are turning around selling to advertisers, and then they are getting money from advertisers, right? So it's not, nothing is, there is nothing for free. So how does Robinhood do it? Well, Robinhood uses these market makers like Citadel, um, and actually, unfortunately, primarily through Citadel, I think 50 to 60% of their trades go through the Citadel group. Um, they essentially allow them to say, all right, if you're going to make a, a trade at market, you can take a little bit of that transaction. So if I say I want to buy five shares of Tesla, Tesla's shares are trading maybe around $200, but they could be trading at like, you know, $199.85 and you might execute that transaction for me at 201 
20. And I'm going to take that difference as, as the kind of market maker. And Robinhood's not really transparent about that. They've actually been sued about that <clears throat> a few times and the SEC has kind of looked into it. So I definitely don't want to say this as like a pure uh, in defense of, of Robinhood here. I think there are certainly things that, that we would need to look at, but my, you know, my initial reaction was, this is clearly, you know, they have conflicts of interest. They're definitely doing this in order to prop up these hedge funds, which certainly it maybe could be a possibility. It also could be that we just have a system that's not necessarily set up to handle a situation like this. And everybody's like looking out for their own thing. And these are kind of the ways that it's built out. So obviously what was the political fallout you had within the day AOC being like, we need to know why Robinhood is not allowing these trades. Like there must be an investigation and, and our, and our good friend, Ted Cruz being like, fully agree, <laughs> which uh, I, I think is a historic moment. I think that tweet, you know, should be framed and go up, go up on a, on a desk somewhere. Um, but you, you know, you screwed up as a company when you have AOC and Ted Cruz both. Trying to right. Right. Yeah. Right. From a but really from a perception side of things, and I think what was really disheartening to me is that everybody decided that they knew the outcome of this, right? Like even by tweeting that, right? AOC is essentially saying that we know who the 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 guilty party is here. It's it's Robin Hood, and really not Robin Hood. It's their parent company or whoever is funding their backers or whatever. And this is the system, the Wall Street system that we've been fighting against the whole time. Like, this is the perfect example. We need to like, we need to come in here and crack down. And I think it's, it's just one of those things where we want to make uh, villains and heroes out of these stories. And we want them to fit our narrative so bad that we don't actually care what's going on here. It, it certainly there is something broken here there's no doubt that something is wrong right like but if it doesn't fit our story it's it's besides the point our story is what's more important than the truth yeah it's fair and it's it's a credit to you for saying all this because that's really the point of what we've been trying to do a lot is to try you said this at the beginning that it's a, it's murkier than it first appears and to find the gray areas uh, but if you look at it something this does seem fundamentally wrong and again, this is a credit to you for making us wait a few days to record this because I was all fired up and this is not my area of expertise at all, but I was all fired up and indignant about the, just the sense of unfairness of it all. There didn't seem to be any justice anywhere in what happened on Thursday. And you, you've already educated me on that. It's a little more complicated than a lot more complicated than I thought. Uh, but if you look at it, like why, why would AOC and Ted Cruz both be against this? Well, if, it's really interesting on both sides, you've had people for years, whether it's Trump or Bernie Sanders saying that the system is rigged, right? The system is rigged against you. And this is exhibit A, right? If you look at it, the little guys out here getting crushed by the hedge funds illegally with this manipulation that's happening. It's just, it's, it was just, we talk about red meat. This is the reddest, the rawest of meat oh, for Donald Trump Jr. to sink his teeth into it, Elizabeth Warren to tell you how corrupt Wall Street is, right? It's, it's all of these people that have been really beating the same drum in different ways to, to really get into it and just became this mega story. And also from like a left-leaning sense of things, 
it's all about fairness and protecting like the the little people in things and trying to make the government work for the everyman. And so, of course, if you're on the left, you're thinking like, we need more regulation. We can't let these Wall Street, these rich people continue to gain wealth at the expense of all these little guys. And if you're on the right, you're a free market person. And all of a sudden, the, the market is not being allowed to function because Robin Hood is refusing to let it function. You, like you're not allowing people to control, like individually control their destiny and their fate. So it was, it's interesting to think about why people are coming at this and why everyone seems to be so offended by what's happening here. It, it is, it is. And I, I think, you know, it's where, where it started is, th- so these little guys are taking down these hedge funds, right? So Melvin, I think, had uh, double-digit billions of losses on their short position. They are the ones that have are are had to get sort of bailed out by Citadel. Um, so there is obviously a lot of that those like connections in there, and 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 why people are saying like you know the the old boys club of of Wall Street sort of just sticking up for its own and and making sure that the little guy is not in here. But here's the thing: there is no little guy in this situation, right? You know, one of the biggest criticisms of the stock market is that it is not like not everybody is in there. To say that most people are not in the market would be an understatement. I think I read the other day that 10% of Americans control 80% of all of the stocks that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange. And that probably doesn't shock either one of us, given you know how much wealth is concentrated and how few hands. But the fact that so few Americans are actually participate in the stock market at all, that was like a little surprising because it feels like it's more egalitarian that more people are involved in it. But to your point that this is not necessarily the little guy, I was thinking the same thing even the, the day of when the, the media was running with, you know, the, the little guy out there, every, the everyday average Joe making all every these trades. And yeah. Like, what? <laughs> right. And it's like, I was thinking that the, the person, you know, living here next to my neighbor in Dorchester or someone up in like rural Maine is not, you know, making a killing on Robin Hood or is now not getting killed because, you know, GameStop has been cut in half in, on this last week. So it's really uh, the little guy. I think it's right to point out that it's not maybe quite as little as the narrative has led us to believe. Yeah. It, it, I mean, that that's definitely you know, a part of it, just in terms of, from a societal perspective, who, who does actually participate in the market, even though you, like, whenever you hear about the economy, maybe you hear a little bit about what the unemployment rate is, but 90% of the time, it's the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones. That's what we talk about when we talk about the economy. So that's, that's sort of one thing that I'm, I'm hoping, because it's getting some, some, traction or some publicity will, will come out of it. But I think you said earlier, you know, this, this may be a news story for another week or so. We may never hear about this again. Um, but the other thing is sort of, is it really the little guy kind of making money off this run up Wall people on wall street? So, you know, we talked about the fundamentals kind of what is the outlook for this company? Are they selling something that we think they that people want? Is there going to be sort of future profitability? That is kind of one avenue that that people take, you know, making uh, share purchases based on what we call market fundamentals. What is going to be the supply? You know, what's the supply and demand for a stock today? What's it going to look like in the future, right? That's going to determine the price. But the other way people trade are 
essentially on on technical. So they're actually just looking at how stock prices are moving within a day over time. And they're basically not considering the fundamentals, just deciding whether or not we invest in the stock because the stock has momentum or because people are, you know, what whatever is driving the price of the stock being irrelevant, we're seeing the movement of the stock. And so there's no way that um, folks in, in maybe not in hedge funds, but other types of funds that are placing big trades, we're not seeing the momentum of GameStop and getting in on the action too. Um, to say that it was like the little guy against the big hedge funds, like I would be surprised if big hedge funds weren't also making money uh, on the other side of this. Right. And that doesn't necessarily bother me, right? This The market is very much an individual game. It's capitalism at its best or its worst, where people are out just to, to make as much money as they can. And the, it's the impropriety or at least the appearance of impropriety and unfairness that Wall Street and the stock market is really just a big casino where people are trying to make money and are gambling and are placing bets for and against companies that you know you think are going to be successful. And I guess when I was younger, I, I thought it was more I don't know, scientific than that, that it was harder. And I think this is one of the reasons that retail investors have grown in the last few months, few years, where it's people are also realizing that there's not some big mystery to things like you can make money in in the stock market just like you would at Encore. And while that's, I think it makes it a little more egalitarian and gets more people in the market, which is generally a good thing. The realization that one of our biggest financial systems is really just a giant casino. is maybe a little scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think you'll have people on the left, like the true progressive left, essentially telling you this or, you know, feel like they've been screaming this forever, right? That the stock market is this area um, where capital kind of makes money on capital, um, but doesn't have any impact on labor. And labor is, you know, the productive sort of side of things. I think, you know, one of those, I, as a, as a person who sort of revels in the context and trying to, to understand the broader picture, like, why do we have the market? So, and this, and this, I mean, I'd sort of be curious to, to hear your take if you have a different one. Um, the purpose of the market is essentially to provide businesses with capital in a different fashion than you would by getting a bank loan, essentially um, by going to the people and saying, I have something that I think people want um, and I need money in order to bring it, you know, to bring it to market. Um, and it's so like that, Kickstarter, but on a big scale. Exactly, exactly. Um, <clears throat> but as we've sort of talked about, once those shares are in the market, buying share in a company, while you are sort of, you know, while theoretically the purpose of that is to kind of to, to put your support behind the company, in reality, you don't do anything for the company itself. Like GameStop, in order to have benefited at all from this would have had to sell shares that they own as a company. So either, um, yeah, so essentially sell shares. And so employees may own shares, but anytime they sell those shares, they're, you know, that's going to the individual's pockets. Um, as the, if the company holds shares, they can sell shares to raise cash. Um, and we've, you know, we've seen over the years, companies are doing things like that. They'll do stock buybacks where they're buying stocks back and taking them out of the market, 
has some implications to their to their stock price but <laughs> the overall like impact to the company like you're not investing in the company itself and you're not helping the company grow it is really just moving money around and the stock market much like the housing market right i can if i'm not if i don't cash out of the stock market i can do other things with those shares but in reality they have no value outside of the market they have a they have a monetary value within the market but that's how we see these things um, happen and the fact that the majority of people really cannot participate in the market but the market has a huge impact on uh, interest rates they have an Im they have the cascading impact on everybody's lives lives right like inflation interest rates all of these things are sort of tied to the broader market um, but the fact that you know we we think about sort of some type of democratization where retail investors are individuals instead of big hedge funds and they have their own priorities and that should be a good thing inherently i think the reality is that we don't actually have that type of situation. We've just introduced a new player. Maybe they get their uh, info off of Reddit instead of some investment report. But in reality, they're not the little guy. And we still have this problem where on the one side, you guys, you have guys that are, I mean, the top, I think 25 hedge fund managers last year made $185 billion according to Forbes, so like the top four, Forbes 400. I'm not going to say they're all in the business of, of shorting stocks. I don't exactly know, you know, what, what their hedge funds are invested in, but that's seven and a half billion a person for 25 people. While you have people who are like, can I get this $1,200 check from the government, please? <laughs> right. And you, you started off that little rant by saying that on the left, there's this outrage. I was actually watching Tucker Carlson that night, Thursday night. And he was like, we no question how these people get their houses in the Hamptons. They don't have, they get their private jets. He was like, they don't do anything, right? It is, generally speaking, like even as much as you want to hate like the big tech people that have hundreds of millions of billions of dollars now at this point, at least they're providing services, right? You can point and say like, he invented Facebook, he invented Microsoft, Apple, whatever. And you can argue that they, they shouldn't have so much money, fine, but you can there's like a tangible thing that you can see that they produce. He's like, all of these people out there, there's no justification for the wealth that they have. Like what, what are they, they're not making, producing, doing anything. So I, I don't think, and again, this is kind of the strange bedfellows position where that, that same outrage that you're noting on the left is the same thing on the right, where people are upset that this wealth is concentrated in the hands of these people that are not producing anything for society. You should be able to sort of unify um, what we have is kind of the more urban, progressive, uh, but lower income uh, cities with the sort of rural, uh, more conservative, uh, lower income, I don't, not quite suburbs, like I'm, I'm really talking about sort of the rural parts of, of each state um, that tend to form actually some of the more probably rabid sides of like the, you know, the left and the, and the base of the right you would think that there would be a huge sort of unifying um, disdain for, for Wall Street, and there kind of is, but in the political sort of discussion, because of how much, I think, influence of big money in politics, which I think is, is, is pretty fair to say, is it's, 
you know, we take that out of the equation a lot. I think progressives try and inject it here and there more often, but because they actually also have a lot of big money donors, like the Obamas and the Clintons were going to talk to Goldman Sachs, like on a fairly regular basis, that's not exactly the most, you know, the most friendly issue um, for Democratic uh, candidates for office um, any more than it would be for for sort of Republicans. And so instead of having this sort of unified front on how are certain people able to extract so much wealth from our um, from our sort of monet financial institutions, monetary systems, um, while we have so much inequality um, throughout the country. And I, and I think that that is something that, you know, I, I would hope that people who are rooting on the sides of here, the little guys taking on the hedge funds would start to, to think about who's really out there playing in the market and really playing with a lot of people's futures. Right. And it's the economic populism that you said should unite people regardless of where you live or what color your skin is. Uh, and I, I think I'm no fan of Elizabeth Warren, but I do think that her campaign was largely driven by that and trying to appeal to to all sorts of you know, working class or lower income voters. Uh, but it definitely, there are so many divides in the country, you know, like the urban and rural, the left, right, conservative, liberal, but it feels like this week, the one I've been reflecting on the most is really like the, the rich poor divide and antagonism in the country. And what's crazy about that divide is that while there are say roughly similar numbers on conservative, liberal, Republican, Democrat, you know, urban, rural, the, the rich, and we're talking about really like the uber, the ultra rich, comprise such a tiny percentage of our society. And like, that's where you do think or would hope that there could be some consensus of like, let, and this was how I left off the previous segment of like, theoretically, there should be some bipartisanship agreement that what's happening isn't right and isn't good for the vast, overwhelming majority of our country. Totally agree. And I think we've talked about this or, or we both feel similarly about this, that it isn't necessarily the fault of people who are playing within the rules. And there are definitely play, people who are, who are not playing within the rules and manipulating markets and, and, you know, zero respect for, for those folks, you know, they should be in jail or, or, or whatever the consequences yeah, are for absolutely. those financial crimes, hundred percent. But at the same token, if the, the rules are the way they are, people should be allowed to exploit them but we as a society, because we have, you know, more people on the losing end of this than on the winning end of this should be able to, again, append the rules and fix the rules. It is going to be tough, though, given the amount of money that's in, in politics and who, get, you know, that individuals with more money have a higher political voice and obviously have incentive not to change the rules. Right. And so as much as we might sit here and hope for bipartisanship and hope that when you have AOC and Ted Cruz both calling for investigations into this, into what happened last week, that we're going to get something, maybe there will be hearings in the next couple of weeks. But honestly, if you look at it aside, unless we really want to dive into um, Citadel and Melvin Capital and Robin Hood, like we need to investigate that. But there's a chance here that no one broke any rules. And as wrong as it all seems on the surface, that actually no laws are broken and there's there's no no one's going to jail, let alone, you know, no one's even probably gonna get fined or a slap on the wrist or anything. So that's why I, I, I said that I think 
within the next week, within the next news cycle, we're probably not going to hear about this. And it'll be just another one of those things that we look back on and be like, wow, that was a, a wild week, a wild day that that all happened. Yeah. And then, but at least hopefully we, we can, we can expect some introspection on, is this the, the financial system, the way that it is set up, is it really best serving the needs of the people or does it even do kind of what it was intended to do? The way that we talk about sort of the political rules that we have that govern our democracy, all of these things need to be re-examined on a, on a consistent basis. I love that. It, we actually talked about that in one of my classes this week where everything we've done as a country, as society is a choice. And we should constantly be looking at this and being like, why did we make that choice? Is that choice still the best choice for us today? And so while you know, I would love to see if people were bad actors in this situation, I would love to see those people actually be held accountable for their actions and, and be put in jail or face massive fines. What I would actually more like to see is what you just said is, okay, let's take this as an opportunity to reflect on some of the things that we didn't like about this situation. And let's, again, this there's seems to be some bipartisan support for this. This is another area. If I was the Biden administration, this is like, you know, they've given it to you on a silver platter. You have like hate sworn enemies being like, hey, there's a problem here. We should maybe do something about this. This is a huge opportunity to get bipartisanship support and try to pass some measures that are largely agreed upon by people, you know, in rural areas, in urban areas, in on the left, on the right. This is, you know, an area where if I were the Biden administration, I would be pushing as hard as I can to take advantage of this. I, I totally agree. I worry, of course, that when we get to the nitty gritty of financial regulation, it it never it never seems to work. You know, it's always like the this is why, you know, the folks on Wall Street, this is why they make the big bucks or whatever, right? Because they're they they're seemingly one step ahead. Um, and I and I do and I and I worry that when it comes down to writing those those rules, that um, that unfortunately the the people that should be in those rooms will not have the right incentives um, to do the right thing. Yeah, and it's like go governing is hard. It's the same stuff we say about the immigration process, where like everyone agrees that it's broken, but it's we haven't been able to fix it, and that's really frustrating. And for the people on the outside, like us, you know, our job is to hold, as Ollie was saying, like hold our elected officials accountable. And so we should criticize them. I'm not saying our behavior is wrong, but it's also it's easy to criticize when you're not in the room and not actually having to draft these laws and, and fix these systems that everyone knows is broken. For sure. For sure. Well, I appreciate you listening to my rant today, buddy. Clearly I had something to get off my chest. So yeah, this was, this was the Ricky Goshroy episode. Maybe <laughs> we'll title it that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. All right, I'll, I'll see you soon. Time. See ya.
They come across the water a thousand miles from home With nothing in their bellies but the fire down below They died building the railroads, they worked the bones and skin They died in the fields and factories, names scattered in the wind They died again in a hundred years ago, they're still dying now The hands that built the country were always trying to keep out There's diamonds in the sidewalk, the gutters last song Tearing in the bare flows with the faucets all night long the 